Well, this is it. After over two years in the book of Ephesians, we're finally bringing it to a close. And uh, I've had fun. I don't know about you, but I've had fun. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 21 through 24. So that you also may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God, the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ, with love incorruptible. Father, we ask this morning that your book would live for us. Uh, your book is not simply a book. What's in there is the lively word of God. And when your word on the printed page is preached by the man whom you called, the Holy Spirit comes and carries that word out, and it accomplishes things in the lives of your people. It converts the lost. It confirms the saved. It strengthens us. It corrects us and rebukes us when we're on the wrong path. It trains us in righteousness. All these things, Father, are done by your word. And it's to you and to your living word that we look, not to any man. And so we pray, Father, Master, speak, thy servant heareth, waiting on thy gracious word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Oh, goodness. Well, as I said, we come to our final message in the, the book of Ephesians. Next week is Palm Sunday, and then we'll have Good Friday services on April 7th, and uh, then Easter. And then after that, we're going to be uh, trying something new. We're going to go in a, in a different direction. Uh, I've had it in the planning stages for several years now, and, and uh, the time wasn't right to, to bring these things out. And so the Lord seemed to be saying, wait. So I waited, and, and I believe here recently that the Lord has told me that the time has, has come to sort of bring these things out and lay them before the congregation. Um, I'm excited uh, I'm optimistic about the things that are to come. I'm, I'm anticipating uh, that the Lord will do wonderful things among us. Uh, in our final stretch, we're going to look at these last three verses in, in Ephesians chapter 6. And, and, the, and the, the goofy thing is that most English Bibles section this te text off uh, under the title, Final Greetings. Now, this is odd at one level because nobody has greeted at the end of this letter, um, not, not at least by name. And that's probably because, as we said way back at the beginning, the, the letter to the Ephesians was not written to one church, apparently. It was a circular letter, so it was written to be read by one church and then passed by another in the region of Ephesus, where there would have been several churches in the, in the regional towns and cities, and Ephesus would have been like the capital city. Now, unless you were a, an emperor or a military official, or a, a governing official in the ancient Roman world, there was no postal service. And personal letters had to be carried by private citizens 
who were traveling or passing through the area where the recipient of the letter lived. Uh, and the closer the person was who was carrying the letter to the person who wrote the letter, the greater the expectation that the letter carrier would verbally convey additional greetings and news and other things from the letter writer. Uh, maybe additional explanations of what's in the letter or something like that. So it was, it was a two-part problem. He wasn't just the postman. He was also bringing the presence of this person with him. Well, we know the name of this letter carrier because Paul names him. Uh, his name was, I, I pronounce it wrong, but I learned it wrong and I can't give it up. His name was Tychicus. It's actually Tychicus if you look at it in the Greek, but Tychicus just sounds weird, so we're going to call him Tychicus. And, and we meet him for the first time in, in Acts chapter 20 and verse 4. We find his name listed among the other traveling companions of Paul, and he is referred to as an Asian. Now, today when we hear that, we think of people from Vietnam or Japan or Hong Kong, but in Bible times, the country that we know today as Turkey was referred to as Asia or Asia Minor, and Ephesus was in Asia Minor. So Ephesus and the region around it was Tychicus's old stomping grounds. This was home for him. And the letter to the Ephesians wasn't the only letter that Tychicus was carrying at that time. And we know this because at the end of Colossians, in Colossians 4-7, we read a commendation from Paul about Tychicus that is nearly identical. And he said, Tychicus will tell you about all my activities. He is a blessed brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. And I have sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. He may encourage your hearts. Paul wanted the people in Colossae and the people in Ephesus to know what was happening to him, how his life was going, and what the Lord was bringing about, and he wanted that for several reasons. First of all, he said, you can't pray intelligently for someone unless you have some idea of what you would like to see God do in their lives or what you would like for God to accomplish through their labors. And that points to the fact, friends, that our prayers ought to be very specific wherever they can be. We are invited to ask God to do particular things through our prayers. And we, therefore, ought to give up on vague prayers, general prayers, the dear God, please bless Fred kind of prayers. No, no. Fred has specific needs. Fred has specific concerns that he's worried about. Part of the privilege of life in the kingdom is to interactively call down the power of God and to bring it to bear on the problems and the needs of people through prevailing prayer. And God wants us, therefore, to be as specific as we can possibly be about what we would like to see happen, what we would like to see him do. Secondly, Paul says, I'm not, I'm not only sending him so that you can know how it's going and pray for me, I'm also sending him to encourage you. I'm sending him to encourage you. Now, now the Greek word that is translated encourage is para kaleo, which is the verb form of the word that Jesus uses to describe the Holy Spirit in John 14. The Holy Spirit is the 
parakaleo, which is often translated as the helper, the helper. And Jesus says in John 14, if you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Some versions translate that word as advocate. Some translate it as counselor. The the word kaleo means to call or to beckon. And the word para means beside. So an encourager is one who is called beside someone who has a need and helps them in the way that they need to be helped. Now, that might might be sound advice that they need. That might be instruction. It might be emotional support. It might be correction or new information. Uh, An encourager is someone who wants your life to flourish. And they want to do whatever they can to help your life flourish from a posture of acceptance and a posture of love. This is a person who has your back. A posture of acceptance and love is necessary for one to be an encourager. Encouragement, then, is one person pouring into another that which will tend to cause the recipient to flourish. Encouragement is not mindless and relentless positivity. Encouragement is not unconditional affirmation of everything you think and do. Encouragement is one person projecting God's best into another person. Encouragement is a natural outcome of love. When you genuinely love someone, you do whatever you can to help them identify and bring to God the things in their life that need to be corrected, that need to be repaired, that need to be restored, and you come together with that person and you say, hey, I'm right right beside you. God has has called me into your situation, and he's called me to bring you help and to to bring you comfort. I, I won't leave you if I have any choice in the matter at all. And... I'm here to help you move towards what God wants for you. That's to be an encourager. There's a little episode in Acts chapter 9 that's just wonderful, but it's easy to miss. Saul of Tarsus, at that point, had been a persecutor of the church. And he had gotten warrants from the authorities in Jerusalem and permission from these authorities to travel to Damascus, which was in a whole other country, and to round up the Christians in Damascus and drag them back to Jerusalem in chains. And on the road to Damascus, Jesus sovereignly saves Saul of Tarsus, and he changes his name. He changes it to Paul, which means little or almost nothing. And he tells him, Paul, You are God's appointed instrument to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. Well, Saul, Paul, ends up back in Jerusalem, and he tries to join the Christians there. And they scurried away from him. They thought it was a trick. They they were afraid of him, and they didn't believe that he had really become a Christ follower. Well, there was this one Christian. His name was Barnabas. 
We meet him first in Acts chapter 4, verses 36 and 37. Barnabas, as we find out in Acts chapter 4, 36, was actually not his real name. It's not the name his mama gave him. It was a nickname, and, and they had to give him a nickname because there were two, his, his real name was Joseph, but there were so many stinking Josephs running around in the early church that they had to figure out how to differentiate them. And so they gave him this new name that was based on his character. Bar, which means son, and Nabas, which means encouragement. Barnabas was the son of encouragement. Well, when we first meet Barnabas, he has just sold a field that was part of his family's legacy. They were from Jerusalem, but they actually lived on the island of Cyprus, and he had come back for, for uh, the, the Passover and, and the celebration the Pen- and at Pentecost, and, and he got converted at Pentecost. Well, um, he's, he's bringing the money now. He sold this field. And People in the Middle East, in ancient Israel, they did not sell land easily. It was, it was kind of a, a big deal to sell land. And he sells this land, and it would have been a substantial amount of money. And he comes and he lays it at the apostles' feet. And they just loved this guy's heart. Here's someone who just wants to help. Here's someone who just wants to serve. He's not doing it to gratify his own ego needs. He's not doing it to gain praise or acceptance from other people. He's not doing it to look like a big shot. He does it from a posture of quiet strength that grows naturally out of a deep confidence in God. And he did what he did to help in each situation. He was the the Mike Owens of Jerusalem. And uh, when the Christians looked at Paul, they saw someone to be afraid of but not Barnabas. Barnabas looked at Paul, and he saw someone whose life had been turned upside down by Jesus. And he saw someone who had to flee Damascus for his own life because the Jews that were there wanted to kill him for believing on Christ and preaching Christ. He saw someone who was alone and unsure and in need of fellowship and a real connection with the church. And nobody wanted to help him. So so Barnabas took him by the hand and brought him to the apostles. And we read about that in in Acts chapter 9. I'll just read it to you very briefly here. Acts chapter 9 and verse 26 and following. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who had spoken to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. So, and when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and they sent him off to Tarsus. And so the church throughout all of Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Paul knew by his own experience how valuable encouragement was because Barnabas had been an earthly conduit of the loving, sweet provision of the Lord to the Apostle Paul. 
Well, we meet Barnabas next in the city of Antioch, and it's months, months later. The Gentiles are, are coming to Christ, which was kind of unexpected for the people. And, uh, and the apostles in Jerusalem hear the report, and they say, hey, Barnabas, go down to Antioch and check out what's going on. Send him on a fact-finding mission. And Barnabas gets there, and he witnesses the mighty work of God as many, many Gentiles are coming to Christ. But at this stage of development in the life of the early church, nobody really knows what to do with a converted Gentile. The church is still virtually 100% Jewish, and, and so there's like, okay, they're not Jewish. How should they live now? Do we need to make them Jews first? What do we do? They need to learn the, the Bible, the Old Testament. That's the only Bible they had because the New Testament was still being written. They, they need to learn the scriptures. They need to learn right and wrong and all these other things like that. But, but what else? They don't know the scriptures. How, how are we going to teach them? And Barnabas encourages them, it says. Of course he does. That's who he is. That's the kind of person he is. And, and then he goes and he says, I know exactly what needs to happen here. He goes and he gets Paul. And he says, hey, Paul, you remember that vision of Jesus where he said, you're my instrument to carry the gospel to the Gentiles? It's time to start your job, Paul. I've got a job for you. You're, God is doing amazing things in Antioch, Paul, and we need your Jewish learning along with your knowledge of the Gentiles and their culture and their literature and their thought. You are the perfect guy, Paul. You need to teach these people how to be Christ followers. And so Paul goes and he meets with the church at Antioch and he's there for a whole year teaching them. At the end of that year in Antioch, the congregation is fasting and they're praying and the Holy Spirit says, set aside Barnabas and Paul for the work for which I have called them. And God then sent them on Paul's first missionary journey. But it wasn't just the two of them. There are others with them in their company, including a guy named John Mark, who was the nephew of the apostle Peter. He's the one who authored the gospel of Mark. And it is, it's a successful trip in terms of evangelism and fruit, but it is a very rough trip. There's lots of fruit, but there's also much hardship. At one point, Paul is dragged outside of the city and stoned, and everybody thinks he's dead. And he gets up and he goes back into the city. So it was not an easy time. And John Mark, who's young, he's inexperienced, he kind of punks out on him. And he, and he leaves them at a city called Perga, and he goes back to Jerusalem. He says, I, I'm not cut out for this, guys. I, I can't handle this. And he goes back to Jerusalem. Well, Barnabas and Paul finish their journey, and they return to Jerusalem. And in Acts chapter 15, we have something very interesting that happens here. It, it probably felt very unfortunate at the time, but it was very interesting. Acts chapter 15 and verse 36. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Check this out. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark. Of course he did. Of course he did. But Paul thought it best not to take with them one who had suddenly withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them on the work. And there arose a sharp 
disagreement so that they separated from each other. And Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went throughout Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Why was Barnabas so intent on taking John Mark? Why did he want to give him another chance? Well, because Barnabas knew that God was at work in John Mark. God was transforming John Mark. He was strengthening him. He was growing him up into maturity. And sometimes that's a, a slow process. And Barnabas was a person who was willing to venture on God's grace and God's power at work in the life of John Mark. And Paul looks at John Mark and he sees one who was unreliable in the past and says, I can't rely on him in the future. Too much is at stake. Barnabas looks at John Mark and says, he was unreliable because he's immature and he needs to grow. He was weak and he needs strengthening. He was discouraged and he needs to be encouraged. And I'm the guy who's here to help him grow. Well, you fast forward 16 years and Paul is in Rome. He's been on trial and things have not gone well for him. He had more than one trial, and before his first trial, we read about it at the closing of the book of Acts, he was tried before Caesar Nero, and he had stayed in a private rented villa. He was chained to a Roman soldier, so it was a kind of imprisonment, so he was chained to this soldier 24-7, but he had a great deal of freedom uh, to receive guests and to teach and things like that, so it was kind of like house arrest. It was not too bad. After his first trial, which didn't go well, he's cast into what's called the Mamertine prison. And that is basically, it still exists today, you can go and see it. It is basically a giant pit open to the sky. And there are little niches and caves dug out in the sides of the pit as the, the path winds its way down around the perimeter of the pit. It's open to the sky, it's cold. When it rains, anybody that's not in a little cave gets rained on. And winter is approaching. And Paul is not prepared, he's not properly clothed, and he doesn't have any way to get properly clothed. And in 2 Timothy 4, verses 9 through 22, we have Paul's last letter, penned right before he was beheaded by Nero. The tone is brave, it's confident in eternal things, but it's also a little bit morose and realistic. He knows he's about to depart. He knows he's about to leave this world. He knows he's going to die. Bishop Handley Moole, an Anglican, 19th century Anglican scholar, writes that at this point, everything that he's worked for is up in the air. The church, said Handley Moole, humanly speaking, trembled on the brink of annihilation. Right there, when Paul's writing this letter. And you can almost hear the weariness in Paul's voice. You can almost feel how sore his heart is as he pens this letter. And he says, Timothy... Bring my cloak that I left in Carpus with Carpus and Troas. Bring my books and the parchments too. Watch out for Alexander the coppersmith. He did me great harm at my first trial. Everybody but Luke has abandoned me. Please make every effort to come before winter, Timothy. My situation is very grave. And in 
2 Timothy 4.11, Paul says, and by the way, get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. How did John Mark go from being useless to being useful? Well, he did it because Barnabas stuck with him. He did it because Barnabas encouraged him. And his encouragement strengthened. And it sharpened. And it matured John Mark. I want to close with a wonderful story. It's a, it's a little bit lengthy, not too bad. It's from a book called A Touch of Wonder by a man named Arthur Gordon. It's, it was first published in the, the 70s. And it's a little stories, true stories that were collected by this guy. In this particular story, it's about the civil rights era in the early 70s in the South. The day had been long and hot. Some of us had spent most of it struggling with one of those civil rights problems that plague American towns from time to time. It had all been painfully familiar. The mayor listening in troubled silence, the surface politeness masking the deep grievances, the helpless feeling of having left the old simple right or wrong far behind and reached the arid region where right clashes endlessly with right. I came home tired and discouraged. At times it seems hopeless, I said dejectedly to my wife. The wounds are too old and the scar tissue is too thick. There just isn't any answer. She was standing at the kitchen sink making a salad. Oh, I don't know, she said. I heard a pretty good answer today down at the hospital. As a hospital volunteer, my wife pushes a cart full of magazines and paperbacks. She talks to patients and patients talk to her. Sometimes bored or lonely, they tell her all sorts of things about themselves. In this case, she said, the editor of a small country newspaper was convalescing from an operation. She dried her hands on the dish towel. You ought to stop by and let him tell you the story he told me. I think you'd be impressed. Why can't you just tell me what he said, I asked. It wouldn't be the same. You ought to get it from him. And so the next day, I stopped by the hospital. The patient was still there, padding around in a dressing gown and slippers, a tall man with gentle blue eyes and a gift for words. We sat in the visitor's lounge, and this is the story he had to tell. I was a timid six-year-old boy with braces on my legs, a frail, lost, lonely little boy when I first arrived at the farm in Georgia. Had it not been for an extraordinary woman, I might have remained that way. She lived on the farm in a two-room cabin where her parents had been slaves. To an outsider, she looked like any of the black people on the place in her shapeless gray dress, but to those who knew her, she was a spiritual force whose influence was felt everywhere. She was the first person called when there was sickness. She made medicines from roots and herbs that seemed to cure just about anything. She had a family of her own, but all the children around felt that somehow they belonged to her, and her name reflected this. In the soft speech of the Georgia lowlands, the word mom is a slurred version of mama. We called her Mom Jean. Mom Jean talked to the Lord often. And we all suspected that when she did, he stopped whatever he was doing, listened, and took appropriate action. Her heart reached out to small, helpless things, and so she took particular interest in me from the start. 
When I was stricken with polio at the age of three, I'm sure my parents didn't know what was the matter with me. All they knew was that times were hard and suddenly they had a crippled child on their hands. They took me to a New York City hospital, left me, and never came back. The people who took me into their foster home had relatives on the Georgia estate where I was sent in hopes that the warmer climate might help. Mom Jean's sensitive emotional antenna instantly picked up the loneliness and withdrawal inside of me, just as her marvelous diagnostic sense surveyed the polio damage and decided that regardless of what the doctors might have said, something more ought to be done. Mom Jean had never heard the word atrophy, but she knew that muscles could waste away unless used. And so every night when her tasks were done, she would come to my room and kneel beside my bed and massage my legs. Sometimes when I would cry out with pain, she would sing old songs or tell me stories. When her treatments were over, she would always talk earnestly to the Lord, explaining that she was doing what she could, but that she would need help, and when the day came, she wanted him to give her a sign. A creek wound through the farm, and Mom Jean, who had never heard of hydrotherapy, said there was strength in running water. She made her grandsons carry me down to a sandy bank where I could splash around pretty well. Slowly, I grew taller, but there was little change in my legs. I still used crutches. I still buckled on the clumsy braces. Night after night, Mom Jean continued the massaging and the praying. And then one morning when I was about 12, she told me that she had a surprise for me. She led me out into the yard and placed me with my back against an oak tree. I can still feel the rough bark of it to this day. And she took away my crutches and my braces. She moved back a dozen paces and told me that the Lord had spoken to her in a dream. He had said that the time had come for me to walk. So now, said Mom Jean, I want you to walk over to me here. My instant reaction was fear. I knew I couldn't walk unaided. I had tried. I shrank back against the solid support of the tree. Mom Jean continued to urge me. I burst into tears. I begged. I pleaded. Her voice rose suddenly, no longer gentle and coaxing, but full of power and command. You can walk, boy. The Lord has spoken. Now walk over here. She knelt down and held out her arms. And somehow, impelled by something stronger than fear, I took a faltering step and another, and another, until I reached Mom Jean and fell into her arms, both of us weeping. It was two more years before I could walk normally, but I never used the crutches again. For a while longer, I lived in my twilight world, halfway between the whites, who considered me part alien, and the blacks, who could offer affection, but no kinship. Then a circus came through town, and when it left, I left with it. For the next few years, I worked with one circus or another. Now and then, when the circus went into winter quarters, I would come back to the little town and help the editor of the weekly newspaper. There was little money in it, but I liked the smell of ink and the sound of words. I never went back to the farm. A runaway seldom returns, but I always asked about Mom Jean, and when I could afford it, I sent her little things. Then one night, when, then the night came, when one of Mom Jean's tall grandsons knocked on my door. It was late. There was frost in the air. Mom Jean was dying, he said, and she wanted to see me. The old cabin was unchanged, floors of cypress, windows with wooden shutters, no glass, a roof of palm thatch mixed with pitch. 
Mom Jean lay in bed surrounded by silent watchers, her frail body covered by a patchwork quilt. From a corner of the room, a kerosene lamp cast a dim saffron light. Her face was in shadow, but I heard her whisper my name. Someone put a chair close to the bed and I sat down and touched her hand. For a long time, I sat there. Around me, the dark faces were grave and patient. There were no tears, no chants. All was quiet. Now and then, Mom Jean spoke softly. Her mind was clear. She hoped I remembered the things she had taught me. Outside, the night wind stirred. In the other room, the fire snapped, throwing orange sparks. There was a long silence. She lay with her eyes closed. And then her old voice spoke stronger suddenly. Oh, said Mom Jean with surprise and gladness. It's so beautiful. And she gave a little contented sigh. And she died. And then something quite unbelievable happened. In the semi-darkness, her face seemed to glow. No one had touched the lamp. There was no other source of light, but her features, which had been almost invisible, could be seen plainly. And she was smiling. It lasted for perhaps 10 seconds. It was most strange, but not at all frightening. I couldn't account for it then, and I can't account for it now, but I saw it. We all saw it. And then it faded, and it was gone. My companion stopped speaking. In the corridor, I heard the rattle of an instrument cart as a nurse hurried by. Finally, he spoke again. All of that happened a long time ago. I live in another town now, but I still think of Mom Jean often, and the main thing that she taught me, that nothing is a barrier when love is strong enough. Not age, not race, not anything. Mom Jean was an encourager. Kneeling down by his bed, night after night for years, massaging his legs, praying for him. She was there for him. And when the Lord deemed that it was time to move, the Lord used her to communicate. You could be an encourager for somebody. And you should be. That's why God gave us to each other.